Take your Bibles and let's go to Romans chapter 13. We've been talking. I shouldn't have moved it. There it is. Okay. We've been talking about government, human government, the Christian's relationship, the church's relationship to human governance here in Romans chapter 13. We're looking at verses 1 to 8. We're going to do it again today and next week. And then the, then we'll be done and continuing to move on. So we kind of bogged down. This is important, uh, important things we think through. Um, today we talk about the purpose of government from this text, as well as uh, the means that God has entrusted to the government by which to enforce its will, which is the sword, the bearing of the sword. And so we look at that in these verses, and we're going to kind of look at those two themes. So... There's almost two halves to the message. The first part of the message, we'll be talking about the purpose of government. What is it? Why did God institute human government? And then from that, we'll move on and we'll look at this tool that the Lord has entrusted to human government by which to enforce justice, which is the sword. And we'll develop that. And uh, kind of bring these thoughts to a close. So we'll talk about just war theory as well as talking about law enforcement a little bit. Um, but of course, in the days in which we live with what's going on in, in Europe and, and watching the war, seeing in real time exactly you know, many of the events that are unfolding there, this is obviously on all of our minds. And so it's rather apropos um, that we would come to it here today. Let's look at the text, and then we'll look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except out of God. And those authorities that are in existence have been past perfect in the past, into the present, with an abiding result, those authorities have been instituted by God. Therefore, here's a conclusion statement from what he just said in verse 1. Therefore, since that is the case, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment. Because rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. I want you to notice good and bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in a place of authority? Then do what is good. You will receive his approval or his praise. Because he is God's servant for your what? Good. But if you are doing wrong, then be afraid. Because he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, who is an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject... Not only to avoid God's wrath, 
through the servant of the Lord, which bears the sword, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of our conscience. And it is because of this that you also pay your taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. They attend to this very thing. And then he kind of brings it all to conclusion. So pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So next week we'll talk here about this issue of conscience. And our Lord brings it up to Peter when Peter doesn't have money to pay his taxes. And so the Lord says, go down and catch a fish. And there was a coin in the fish's mouth. And the Lord paid the tax for Peter out of his fishing with a coin that this fish had scarfed up somewhere along the way. But our Lord said we need to pay this tax out of conscience. So we'll look at that. We'll look at this issue of conscience and how it relates to our obedience. And then we'll talk about taxation and what taxes are, what they aren't, and what is expected of us by God in relationship to the taxes that are imposed upon us and how we as Christians should relate to that. Which there again is kind of apropos with timing because it's kind of tax season. Today, I want us to look at these two things. What is the purpose of government? If you were asked that question, you know, why is government here? What is, what is human government? What is this all about? Many people all across the globe find themselves under many various different kinds and forms of human government. You know, there are dictatorships. There are democracies. There are republics. There are bureaucracies. There's all the different areas and ways in which humans have contrived means of governing in a nation state. We live in the United States of America. Obviously, not every Christian has or will or does. We are tremendously blessed. And all of our thinking, obviously, is colored heavily by our own experience. By the reality that we live under the government that we live under. And it's a tremendous blessing to live under that government. And we're going to talk about our Constitution for a few minutes this morning. And think about what these men said for us and how it relates to us as believers as we think of the purpose of government. You know, but what is the purpose of government? And and what is that thing that government has been entrusted with that gives them the ability to fulfill that purpose? It's the sword. Now, what's the sword? The sword in the ancient world is that tool that they strapped on their side that's a weapon. But really, what he's speaking about is force. Force. That God has given to the human governing authorities the capability and the ability to enforce their will by force. Whether we're thinking about a sword, or we're thinking about a 9mm, or whatever the case may be. This is alluded to in Genesis chapter 9. 
You may want to turn there. You don't have to. But I want to think about that verse for just a minute. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, Noah comes off the ark. God makes a covenant with Noah that he will never flood the earth again to destroy it. And in that covenant that God makes, God also tells man from now on, it's okay, it's a part of my will, if you want to kill an animal, and you want to eat that animal, go for it. You want that prime rib? Go for it. But then he says, whoever sheds man's blood by mankind his blood shall be shed so god is saying in this covenant with noah animal killing that's okay and there are other parameters laid on it through the scripture you don't kill an animal wantonly and waste it that does not honor god But if you kill an animal to eat it, that it might sustain your life, God's blessing is upon that. But if you kill a man in murder, we're talking something completely different. If that happens, then what is to happen? If a man kills another man, then what does he say? By mankind, what happens? The collective governance of the society comes together and under God his blood is to be shed and then he explains why at the end of that verse what is the reason that God puts that on us because in the image of God he made man The animal kingdom is not made in the image of God. It's okay for you to eat an animal. It's not okay to murder another man. And if we do, then what does he say? Mankind has a responsibility because of the sanctity of life. Think about that. He is saying clearly in that verse, it is because of the sanctity of human life. For that reason... Society is to take the life of the man who is a man-killer, who is a man-murderer. Let's use the word correctly. That's what he's saying here. So now, that helps us to understand the purpose of government as we think in these verses about what he is saying. Now let's go on and just think about what's going on. What is the purpose of human government? Let's think about what our Constitution says. At the beginning of the United States Constitution, hopefully you remember these words. Hopefully you somewhere along the way have read the United States Constitution. It is the governing document under which we are governed. It's important we know it and understand it. And what does it say? We, the people... Of the United States. In order. Notice the word in order. This is going to help us understand what these framers are saying is the purpose of the government that they are establishing under this Constitution. In order to what? 
form a more perfect union. Number two, to establish justice, to ensure domestic tranquility. He's not talking about like domestic, like that's your home, that you have a tranquil home. He's talking about society. They're talking about society, though, domestic tranquility in our interactions in the society in which we live, in the community. So this document is to provide for domestic peace here at home, but it also provides for what? The common defense. So we're talking about national politics and international relationships, providing for the common defense to promote the general welfare, to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves, and also what? Our posterity. We do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So, when God tells us in these verses, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, you are probably, I hope, a citizen of the United States of America. You are not a citizen of the USSR. If you were, we would have something else up here. But since we find ourselves in this context, this is our home, this is where we live, when God says to me and to you, let everybody be subject to the governing authorities, I'm going to say, okay, who is the governing authorities under which I must submit? What is it? It's this. It's this. It's what flows from this. We the people. The United States of America to ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. We need to know this so we can obey it. So we can hold those that are in responsibility and authority over us to it. So when they go astray from it, we bring them back to it. Right? Because we are under it. Not the arbitrary whims of every bureaucrat who comes along like a petty tyrant. So the written constitution provides for what? Union. More perfect, more perfect union. So we have things like commerce clauses and other things that help us form a more perfect union among the states. There's justice to establish it. There's tranquility that we desire, which is domestic, and then there is a defense that we are looking to our government to supply for us in common against foes. We are to promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty. And not just for me until I pack it all up and I go to glory. I am to stand for freedom for my grandkids. It's not just for me. It's not just about me. This helps me think about the purpose of government in general. Now, I would ask you to think with me, and we're not going to take a lot of time with it this morning because I've got a lot of stuff to go over today. 
But I'd encourage you to go through that list and say, what on that list flows out of what is good and what is true and what is scriptural? And I think you'll find a lot of agreement between what is good and what comes from God and what these men identified as should be who we as a nation are. I think they're building on a lot of biblical truth here. Now, in Romans 13... The Holy Spirit basically gets it down to two issues. The government's job is to promote good works, to praise them, to approve them. It's in the text. The government's work is also to discourage what? Evil works. To cause fear. To use the sword. So, if we look at it in the scripture and we get it down to just the bare bones, we're going to say that the purpose of government is to promote what is good and to discourage what is, are you awake? Evil. That's pretty easy, isn't it? Good and evil. We're seeing this all through this passage. As we've gone through Romans chapter 12 and into chapter 13, you know, that the Christian loves, he clings to what is good, but he turns in horror from what is evil. And here he puts it like this, the government's responsibility is to promote what is good and to discourage what is evil. So this brings us to the next question. In order for government to do that, it has to have a standard for good and evil. And it must have a means to promote an enforcement to that end. This standard of what is good and what is evil is codified for us by God in his written word and in natural revelation. In Romans chapter 2, remember that? Long time ago in our study, but in Romans chapter 2, the apostle Paul said of the, the barbarians and the pagans of Rome... He said if they don't have the law of God written, but yet... They, by natural instinct, natural revelation, do what is written in the law. They show that the law is written on their heart. It's not rocket science. God wrote it on the human heart. It's wrong to kill babies. It's wrong. People know that. I don't like to kill an animal, really. But I know it's different. I'll never forget laying in the mud with a vet trying to extricate a calf from a cow that had died in the womb. It is already dead. But in order to get that calf out of the womb, we're laying in the mud in this lovely weather like this. The only way to get that thing out was to use a knife and to reach in and take it limb by limb and piece by piece. And as we're laying in the mud, working together in this cow's uterus, which I'm sure she was not enjoying very much, I looked at my vet and I said, can you imagine doing this to a live human being? 
And my vet looked at me and said, we're barbarians. Why? We know. It's not rocket science. You don't even have to read that. In Exodus chapter 20, it's in the human heart. So, that takes us to the next question. The ideal government, and I underlined and put in italics the word ideal to draw our mind to this, the ideal government acting as God's agent mirrors God's standards of right and wrong. That's what is ideal. But you know what? The fallen world is not ideal. So what do we have? Legal baby killing. So what do we do? That brings us right back to the other question. What does a believer do when those standards do not mirror God's justice? If it is the role of government to promote what is good, to discourage what is evil, when the government turns it on its head and encourages evil and pays for it, and discourages good, then what do we do? Man, we're right back where we started a couple of weeks ago. Because it's not very easy stuff. It's pretty clear. It's pretty simple. It just ain't very easy to live it. It ain't very easy to discern it. The question brings us back to the rule for the exception. So what do we say? Essentially, when government condemns what is good and forbids it, then the Christian comes back to the Christian's duty. Every, I want us to understand this. You know, sometimes when I've been down to Cheyenne, you know, and you're talking to legislators and you're da-da-da-da-da, we want to separate moral issues, the moral issues. And they all hate them. They don't want to deal with them. The abortion, marriage. Moral issues from real life. But you know what? I would submit to you that, in essence, every legislative issue is a moral issue. There's no gray. There may be difficulties to discern principle, but every issue is moral. I mean, just let's think about a few. Okay, good versus evil. Jim Crow laws in the South. What is my Christian duty if I live in that situation? My duty. My duty. Oppose it. To stand against it. Why? It's evil. Did the church do that well? No. Why? Because we're all a bunch of spineless, lily-livered wimps. <laughs> right? We didn't. What did we say? Oh, we just want to get along and just live our life. Abortion. It's a moral issue. I read an opinion in the Jackson Hole paper this week talking about legislation that was before Cheyenne in the last week 
This letter to the editor, of all things, was written by a pastor in Casper, Wyoming. Listen to what she said. As a minister, I have prayed with many women about their choice to terminate a pregnancy for whatever reason. And I know it is an act of faith and love to give that unborn baby back to God. To assume that women who make this most difficult choice have done so without praying and agonizing with their God is wrong. Right and wrong. So she's arguing, isn't she? That it's wrong for you to say it's wrong for her to kill her baby. But the discussion is about what? What is right and what is wrong? LGBTQ orthodoxy, COVID mandates. Mm, Make no mistake that when the government mandated the indefinite closure of businesses that caused people to lose their livelihoods, there's a moral component to that. Because it's theft. domestic oil production, all these issues, they are moral issues and they're always framed that way. Why do leftists say it's wrong to produce oil domestically? Because we worship the green god and that's what's good. It's good and evil. Ah, Bears the sword. Let's talk further. I think we'll finish with that, talking about the purpose of government. What I want you to notice from that discussion is it's pretty complex. And we have to wrestle in the days in which we live with what to do with government that tells us to support what is evil. And I love Alexander Solzhenitsyn's little quip, live not by lies. So, if the government wants me to lie and say a man is a woman, I'm going to refuse. I'm going to refuse. So, live not by lies. I think that's a pretty good standard. Bears the sword. We're talking about domestic tranquility. We're talking about national justice. We're talking about common defense, international justice. The sword is the authority to punish domestic evil. It is also the authority to act for the common defense. So the sword gives the state the authority under God to punish evil. Now, the issue, this is the difficulty. When Rome said to the church, you will say, Caesar is Lord. And Roman Christians said, no, we will not. 
they got what? The sword. They went to the lions. Because the domestic authorities were entrusted with the sword and they had brute force on their side. And they could do it. They answered to God for it, but they could do it. It is important we note here that when we say something that is opposing governmental philosophy and opinion, they have the capability and the power to make our lives miserable. And if they do, what happens? They do. The early church did not form a militia and try to take down Rome. They went to their death. Bears the sword. The sword is a personal weapon of the ancient world. Uh, Figuratively, it is used for the state's role in promoting justice by brute force. Figuratively, the word sword is used all through the Scripture to speak of the work of the Spirit through the Scripture. The, The Word of God is what? The sword of the Spirit. It is also, you know, a double-edged sword. And so the sword, you know, he's using a metaphor here, something that we can really kind of grasp, that we can kind of grab onto to help us understand what is going on here. Now, what I want to take the time to talk about for a minute as we think about this tool is not so much law enforcement and what that looks like in the United States of America. I want us to think, on the other hand, more along the line of what's going on when we think about warfare, when we think about the common defense. And the reason I want to think about that for the rest of our time this morning is because we live right in the middle of a war. Now, it hadn't touched us in one sense, although it touches us when we go to the pump, but probably not as much as they'd like us to think when we go to the pump, because it was sure moving that way before the war ever started. But that's a different issue. We're staring a war in the face. That war is very real to people who live there. Now, if it continues to grow and concentric rings begin to gobble up more territory and more alliances and treaties that were formed, How does God want us as believers here to respond to it? Because we may have to make that decision. So let's think about some issues. When is it right for a nation to go to war? When is it right for a believer to join that cause? And so I want to think about just war theory a little bit. I don't know if you ever wrestled with just war theory. I want to think about that today. And I want us to think, eh, we're not going to talk much about the Geneva Convention. But a lot of these things, a lot of just war theory ended up being really codified and spilled over into the Geneva Convention. The articles there that helped really nations to think about what happens when war breaks out between nations. I want to begin with a little disclaimer. You know, the little saying that I think is true. Sweet is war to him who knows it not. And my disclaimer is I've never been to war. Some of you may have. You're going to look at these things through the lens of your own experience. I've never been there. 
I want to look at principle. I want to look at biblical truth, but I can't say I'm speaking from any personal experience. Stonewall Jackson, and you know, I don't want to be like an armchair theorist. I want us to look at principle, but I want you to know that up front. I'm not talking from personal experience. Stonewall Jackson said this, and he was well known as a warrior. He said, war is the sum of all evil. When we're talking today, we're, going to choo- we're choosing a very specific adjective. We're going to talk about just war. We're not talking about good war. We can go into the multipurpose and we can have a good game of basketball. And we can elbow each other and we can fight it out and we can play hard. And at the end, we can shake hands and say that was a good game. You never get to the end of a war and say of it, it was a good war. War is evil. It is the sum of all evil. But it can be just. It's very important we think clearly of that. It can be just. It's not always just, but it can be just. Wars can produce some degree of good by establishing peace and maintaining justice and protecting the lives of innocent people. And in that sense, it can be just. It can establish peace, it can maintain justice, and it can protect the lives of innocent people. I want us to think about four historic views among Christians. Or, let's think about this. Think about all the issues that come up in war. Is conscription just? Is it just? Now, countries do it all the time. Is it just? Non-combatants. The Geneva Convention forbids the killing of non-combatants, right? You to protect them. I'm not picking sides here, but I'm just saying it's not always that clear. Because what do you do when women and children are throwing Molotov cocktails and carrying AK-47s? And you take a civilian population and you suddenly arm them and call them agents of the state. You may have a good reason to do that. I'm not faulting Zelensky. But you put yourself on the other side of that equation, what do you do? You just say, well, you can throw your Molotov cocktail and burn me up, but, you know, since you're a non-combatant, I'm not going to hurt you. What do you do? And is it just... I want to say about is it just to incentivize non-combatants engaging in combat? Don't ask if we get invaded. You know, you remember the old movie Red Dawn when the Russians invaded? Man, that's going to be me, right? I'll take my hunting rifle. Okay? Now, I know how we all think as red-blooded Americans. I'm not asking how you think. I'm asking, is it right? 
when that stuff starts happening and then people start paying and getting killed who really are not combatants in the standard sense of warring armies. Uh, There again, I'm not passing judgment. I'm just saying it's pretty difficult to wrestle with this stuff. Civilian participation, treatment of casualties and POWs, refugees, theft of resources and pillaging. You know, when your city is under siege, was all of a sudden the ban on theft lifted and it's okay now in the sight of God to go pillage the corner store? Is it okay? I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying people in Ukraine are struggling, if you're a Christian, with some pretty big ethical issues. Pretty big ethical issues. Is it okay to go steal gas so you can drive your car because you can't buy it at the pump because of the war? Four historic views among Christians. Two of them are are what we would call pacifism, and two of them are engaged in war. So, non-resistance, which is an active pacifism. This is really the Anabaptist groups really embrace this, which is it is wrong for a Christian. You know, so I even had conversation with Amish guys who were working on our ranch, and in their view, somebody breaks into your home, it is an armed entry, it is wrong for you as a Christian to kill them with a sidearm. Non-resistance in any way to aggression. Um, The other is more of a passive, which is Neville Chamberlain. Remember Neville Chamberlain from world history? Neville Chamberlain, his politics and the way he handled Hitler, peace in our time at Munich, was colored not by being a secularist, it was colored by his faith. He was a Unitarian, and he believed in the inherent goodness of all men. So he believed Hitler on the inside was really a good guy. He's just talking tough, and if we just help him and smooch up to him, he's going to do the right thing. And he did not recognize that Hitler was an evil man. So he was a pacifist in a passive way. The third view is kind of just war obligation, which is going to say, and notice the word obligation, that if you're a Christian and you live in the United States of America, and the United States declares war, and you are conscripted, then you have an obligation to go fight. As a Christian, it's an obligation, just war obligation. And this would be more of a passive defensive view of how Christians are to engage in war. And then you have preemptive war, which is kind of the idea um, of the Crusades. Um, Going on a crusade. So you know your enemy is going to hit you. Well, then you hit him before he hits you. You take a preemptive action. So, preemptive war. These are four historic views, and we could talk about them all day. It's interesting to note that the early apostolic church, or excuse me, not early apostolic, post-apostolic church, was heavy pacifistic. I'm I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong. It's just intriguing to me that living under Rome, and in that circumstance... If you converted to Christianity and you were a soldier in the year 150 A.D., 
if you did not leave the military at the expense of your life sometimes, then you would be excommunicated. You would be excommunicated from the church. So for until about the year 300, the church, this is just historical. I'm not arguing it theologically. I'm saying the truth. Until the year 300, until Constantine baptizes his entire army and calls them Christian. Until that point, the church was predominantly, exclusively pacifistic. It was wrong to go and fight. That was the inherent view. It's not until Augustine that we really get just war theory. So what is just war theory? Here's the essential elements of, in just war theory, the things that should be true in order for a war to be a righteous cause. Number one, there has to be a formal declaration. Formal declaration. I think that's important to note in the day in which we live and in what's happened many times in American history in the last 70, 80 years. This gets skirted a lot of times. We have police actions and other things, never formal declarations. Formal declaration. Number two, last resort. Last resort. Just cause. Just wanting the river that is in your neighbor's border isn't just cause. Just wanting your neighbor's port isn't a good reason. Just cause. Hitler was a just cause. I think we could all say that. Pretty easy one. Right intention, proportionate means. You don't just go nuke somebody and take out their whole country just because you got into a spat over a border. Proportionate means. Non-combatant immunity, reasonable expectation of what's going to happen at the end of it. You know, is it just going to be a protracted war that never ends? And there's no end game in sight? Or is there a reasonable expectation that we can fulfill the intention for which we are going to war. These are the things that should be wrestled with. Now, they come down to essentially three things. Number one, its cause must be righteous, just cause. Number two, its means must be controlled. There must be proper authority. In other words, what he's saying there is it's not just rogue entities that are just fighting each other. No, they are armies that have been entrusted with the sword by God with the ability to wield it. It's not just rogue action, everybody going out and doing what is right in their own eyes and pillaging and murder. Its outcome must be predictable, right intention. So you have just cause, proper authority, right intention. Those three things essentially compose whether or not a war is just. So then we would ask ourselves, is it just for the United States of America to take the next step? Next step would be a no-fly zone, which is an act of war. Mark it down. When they say that, 
we're going to set up a no-fly zone, we're talking act of war. Is that just? I'm not going to tell you it is or it isn't. I just say, let's think about it. And let's have the conversation, not just do whatever. Let's think about God's relationship to war for a minute. It's just interesting that in the Old Covenant, God used warfare as a tool to establish his people in their land and to judge idolatry. You can't get around that. God told the promised, or God's promised people to go into the promised land and to wage war against Canaanites. In the new covenant, covenant, he rejects it as a means of establishing his kingdom. Jesus said, if my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would take up arms and fight for me. There's going to be a transition that's going to come. I'm not convinced we're not living in this era when God declares war. And then, as we read in the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, in the millennial age, war is going to be banished. The nation will not raise sword against nation. They will not learn war anymore. And they will beat their swords into pruning hooks and their spears into plowshares. That's God's relationship to war. But here's the closing thought. Months ago, we were in Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, God said something like this to us. What can separate us from God's love? Can persecution? No. Can going to the pumps and not having enough gas to fill up my truck? No. Nakedness? No. Can sword? He mentions it. Can the sword? If we go to war, if that happens, does it separate you from God's love? No. Nothing can. In all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors. He is not there talking that we win the war physically. He is saying there's nothing that comes into our life that God does not allow, ordain for our good, and direct into his will to bring glory to him that will separate you as a believer from his love. Nothing. They bring the sword against us. God still loves us as much then as he does today. These are tough days we live in. There are domestic evils all around us. We ask ourselves many questions. Our government, no doubt, to a large degree, has traded the definition of what is good and evil and flipped it on its head. And we say, what do we do? How do we respond? And then we have foreign wars and foreign aggression and foreign difficulty. But nothing will separate us 
from God's love. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And Lord, as we live in the days in which we live, the days that you have ordained for us, I pray that you would help us to walk with wisdom, especially to those who are outside the faith, as you say in your word. Lord, help us as your children to think clearly and and to think strategically that we might prepare ourselves for difficult days to come. Lord, we thank you that you are in control, that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and take out your hymnal? Turn to page 602. 602, I have decided to follow Jesus. We will be singing verses 1, 2, and 3. thank you. We thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you for the truth that was preached today from your word. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would take it to heart, that, Lord, that you would use us as your servants in this world, and that others may see us, may see our lives, and be turned towards you. We thank you. We thank you for this day and for the service today. Use us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.